Standby playback. And now, live, real red meat radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars, our beloved Lars. republic, it's in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my '67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Tuesday, and it's the best conversation in talk journalism. And if you want to join in, it's certainly easy enough to do. I'll tell you how at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And our poll on X formerly Twitter, should cities demand that cops record the apparent race, gender, and age of everyone they stop? And if you're wondering, what kind of crazy lunatics want to do that? Well, that would be New York City police officers that the mayor, Eric Adams, says will be required to record the apparent race, gender, and ages of most people they stop for questioning under a law passed by the city council. Now, the reason they say apparent race I guess it means the police officers are going to have to just guess. Well, and will they have to guess on gender as well? Because these days, who could tell? Gender, is it male, female, uh, non-gender, uh, but, you know, bis- bisexual, whatever it happens to be. They say the issue was thrust into the national spotlight in recent days when New York police officers pulled over a black city council member. What better reason to pass a law than somebody on the city council is affected personally? The bill gives police reform advocates a major win. Yeah, it's going to tie up the police with a whole bunch of nonsense. Why you have to document the race, the gender, the ages of most of the people that you stop. Now, this is absolute lunacy, so I'm going to say no. The city should not demand that cops record the apparent race, gender, and age of everyone they stop. I know what they're going to do with this politically. They're going to say, well, you stop uh, more people of color than you do stop white people. And that's an indictment. I'll bet the cops would tell you, we also happen to stop more men than we do women. And why is that? Because more men are involved in crime. If you don't believe me, check with your local prison and ask them what percentage of the population in prison is men and what percentage is women. It splits about nine to one right now in almost every state in America. So recording the information, it'll be a great political hobby horse for members of the city council to ride, and probably Eric Adams. It doesn't do a darn thing to solve New York City's police problems or the problems of any other city in America. Today's poll on X can be found at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com, brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined a long time ago. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better, better for you and better for America. Now, there are a lot of things that we're going to talk about tonight. Joe Biden and his problems in Iran and other places in the Middle East. He seems to be walking us up to the edge of war, just like he walked us up to the edge of nuclear Armageddon by his own account, by getting involved in Ukraine. And of course, we may have a shooting war with China anytime soon. And by the way, It was summer of 2020 when candidate Joe Biden was warning anyone who would listen, including people, you know, who are watching him on television. He said, this Donald Trump, 
He's going to get us into wars. Well, turns out that he was just projecting. That's what somebody does when they are guilty of that very thing, and they try to blame everybody else for it. But I want to bring you up to date on a brand new story you're not likely to see in the mainstream media. I'll give full credit to the Daily Wire, to the Post Millennial, and to our friends at Gateway Pundit. January 6th was the riot on Capitol Hill. But the night before January 6th, there were two pipe bombs that were found, and they were found one at the Democratic National Committee headquarters and the other at the RNC headquarters. And ever since then, a lot of us have been asking the question, well, did you find the people behind it? Now, the Department of Justice under Joe Biden can tell you everything you'd ever want to know about every one of the 900 or 1,000 people who were on Capitol Hill on January 6th. So what have they been able to find out about the person who planted those pipe bombs on the evening of January 5th, right before the January 6th incident that went exactly the way Nancy Pelosi wanted it to? She got forewarning that there was going to be trouble. She ignored the forewarning. She didn't tell the Capitol cops to prepare. And then she got the riot she wanted. She knew there was going to be an incident. Was this part of that? Was it part of the effort to try to paint Donald Trump into a corner and say, now we're going to impeach you, and now we're going to make sure that you never get to seek political office? They tried. Donald Trump was accused of insurrection in the impeachment. He was acquitted by the U.S. Senate. I think it's important to point that out. And why did the riot happen? Because Nancy Pelosi decided she needed that riot as an excuse for the impeachment. And that's why she, as the person in charge of the Capitol Police, told them to ignore the FBI's warning. And believe me, if you ask me, well, how do you know the FBI warned them? Because the FBI held a press conference on January 9th, about three days later, and said to everybody who was watching on national television, we warned the Capitol Police that trouble was coming on January 6th. And what did Nancy Pelosi do? She was offered 10,000 National Guard troops from Donald Trump. She said, no, not interested. She told the Capitol Police, don't take any special precautions. Don't put up extra barricades or anything else. But what about this person who planted the bombs? What do we know about him? Well, they caught video capture of this guy planting the bombs. They caught a license plate. They caught a Metro card that was used by the person who did it. And now we're finding out, again, I'll give full credit to Daily Wire, Gateway Pundit, and the Post Millennial. They know who the person is. They know his name. They know where he lives in Northern Virginia. So the next question you'd logically say is, well, have they gone out to talk to him? No, because the FBI teams that were told to go out and investigate the planting of these bombs, and they had the information, and they said, we know whose fare card was used that day. We know the license plate that was associated with it. It is apparently a retired Air Force Chief Master Sergeant who was now working as a contractor with a security clearance. You say, fine, go out and talk to him. I mean, police talk to people all the time, in some cases, just to eliminate somebody as a suspect. They were told not to. An FBI whistleblower has said, and he was apparently on the team, you're investigating this. We've found a great suspect. We need to go talk to him. No, you are not to go talk to him. That's the story as of tonight. Now, I'd be willing to bet it's not going to show up in your local daily dead fish wrapper. 
You're not going to see it on CNN or MSNBC. You probably won't even see it on Fox. But does it make any sense that when you have a crime, planting pipe bombs is a crime, and it happens the night before January 6th, you have the FBI investigating for three full years, allegedly the best investigative agency in the world, and they can't find the guy, except now we know they know the name of somebody who may know who the person was. It may, in fact, be this person, and they were ordered not to talk to him. Now, figure that one out, and your mind just runs wild with the possibilities. Glad to be with you on a Tuesday. Always glad to take your phone calls and emails. Coming up, UNRWA, that's the UN's humanitarian arm, the one where they found some of the humanitarian activities they were up to in Gaza was supplying rocket-propelled grenades. We're going to talk about that with our friend Frank Gaffney from the Center for Security Policy up next. We saying the things you wish you could say more with Lars. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you. And I have to confess, I've never been a fan of the United Nations. And I like them even less every single day now as you find out more of the things they're up to and more of the things that they're doing that screw up the world. Frank Gaffney joins me now from the uh, Center for Security Policy. He's the founder of CSP. He's also the author of the number one best-selling book on Amazon in its category, The Indictment, Prosecuting the Chinese Communist Party and Friends for Crimes Against America, China, and the World. Frank, welcome back and tell us what we should make of the fact that the UN's uh, humanitarian arm, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency known as UNRWA, um, what, they were supplying weapons to Hamas and taking part in the October 7th slaughter? Well, Lars, just a little calibration. Uh, first of all, there is an, um, a refugee uh, agency of the United Nations that covers the entire world, except for the Palestinian community. And then there's this separate entity called the UN um, Relief and Works Agency. Works, uh, Relief and Works Agency, uh, UNRWA, they call it, that um, covers just the refugees, as they call them, uh, in the Palestinian community. That turns out to be several million people because the way they calculate the number of refugees in this one instance is anybody, <laughs> basically. <laughs> not, just, not just people who were refugees, but all of their descendants and everybody they ever met, apparently. Anyway, the, the point that's just amazing about this is that this one little agency with this one particular portfolio uses up a quarter of the resources that are available for refugee relief around the world. And it's got like 30,000 people employed for the purpose, which is, I think, something like a third of the total workforce. So something is amiss here. And that's only further compounded to respond to your question by the fact that this particular entity, UNRWA, is essentially indistinguishable from Hamas which runs the Gaza Strip, of course. And, and what you've just asked about is one particularly astonishing example of the problem, and that is that 12 
individuals employed by this relief agency of the United Nations for the Palestinians actually participated in this invasion, this murderous, genocidal, horrifically uh, oppressive uh, invasion. Anyway, that's one problem. Then there are about 13,000, I'm told, of the employees of this 30,000 that are actually members of Hamas. I, I don't hold me to that number, but it's something like that. It's a, it's a surprisingly, maybe it's 1,300, but whatever the number is, it is further evidence that what you have here are people who are deeply tied to the jihadis, to these terrorists of Hamas. And and we're seeing aid being funneled in. You're hearing about this every day, that oh, there's such terrible you know, hardship being faced by these people in Gaza, and I'm sure that's true of a lot of them. But one of the reasons why it's true is all of the aid that is being sent in there, whether it's water or food or medicine or fuel, is based, basically having 60% of it taken off by Hamas into their tunnels or into their infrastructure support. So there are people suffering, but as is generally the case with Hamas, who simply does not care about the people of Gaza, um, they're suffering in no small measure because of the connection between UNRWA on the one hand and Hamas on the other. I guess I'd, I'd make this point, Frank. The people of Gaza, who, who've tripled in population in the last, you know, 30 years, it might even be 20, but I know at least they've tripled in the number in, in the last 30 years, have not, it's not a smaller population, and that's not all just from births, uh, but it's also from people going there. Why in the world are people going to a place controlled by a terrorist organization unless they support it? And then there are the public opinion polls of Gazans who say that about 75% of them support Hamas. And then you have the fact that they elected Hamas the last time there was an election, which I think was about 17 years ago. They elected Hamas to the parliament, and our intelligence agencies say Hamas effectively is the government of Gaza. So it's a little tough for me to separate you know, civilian versus Hamas, you know, um, among other problems is that every single terrorist is technically a civilian. They're not a member of a, an armed force representing a country. But is it possible that... Yeah, and you know where that shows oh, up, Lars? Where? It, it shows up in the statistics that were endlessly told of the number of people killed, uh, according to the so-called Gaza Health Ministry. Yep. Which is, of course, just a propaganda arm of Hamas. Because you don't count terrorists as, you know, uh, armed combatants or anything other than civilians, all of those people are now being considered part of the toll. And I don't believe the number in the first place, but whatever the number is, it is inflated uh, by the number of people that Israel is fully entitled to be trying to kill, and that would be the Hamas uh, Sharia supremacists. Yeah, you can't tell a civilian from the terrorist, and and if the population as a whole, two and a half million people, if 75% of them support Hamas, and they'll tell that to people who take these polls, but let me ask you, is it is it plausible that UNRWA could be doing all of these things, including supplying weapons, rocket-propelled grenades, and taking part in, in slaughters like what happened on October 7th without the higher-ups of UNRWA back 
at the U.N. or the U.N. higher-ups being aware of it? You know, as to whether they knew specifically that 12 of their folks were actively involved in this bloodletting, I, I don't know. But what they certainly know, Lars, and what's the bigger scandal, is that the whole enterprise is essentially um, a material support for terrorism operation working hand in glove with Hamas. And and the professions that, you know, they're just a few bad apples here, as we're being told, is wrong. This, this thing is rotten to the core. And sadly, the United States government under the Biden administration and the the rest of the Obama-Biden administrations, one and two, I call this number three, have been perfectly happy to pour money into Gaza. Some of it gets routed through the Palestinian Authority, but some of it's uh, going in, as is the humanitarian assistance now, directly to Hamas. The other data point that people ought to know about, Frank, and you're the one who pointed it out, Maher Bittar, I think is the name, Mm. former UNRWA employee. What is his current day job he is the director for intelligence on the u.s national security council and the thing that's so striking about that lars is this is not simply the guy who is in charge of the um, movement of classified sensitive intelligence information from the various intelligence agencies of the united states government to the white house He's also the guy who's responsible for passing, you know, directives and orders from the White House into the intelligence community. This is not an objective individual. This is a partisan, I believe, uh, playing for Hamas. And you see that in some very troubling aspects of the Biden policy towards Israel at the moment, which I think really constitutes an effort to not only uh, contribute to its defeat in this war by, among other things, not providing the arms that Israel needs, but actually trying to topple the government of Benjamin Netanyahu. It's, it's staggering. Hey, last less than 60 seconds. Joe Biden says he's come to some conclusion about what he's going to do in response to the service members murdered by terrorists in Jordan. Um, what are you expecting? Well, probably more pinprick responses aimed at people who are surrogates for Iran uh, under the pretense that they don't have anything to do with Iran. If Iran is not held accountable for this and punished for it, you can bet you're going to see more of it. Sadly so. That is Frank Gaffney, the man who founded the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C. The book is called The Indictment. It's about China's crimes. We'll be back in a moment. I'll get to your phone calls and your emails. And what about this? When a state allows your daughter to be kidnapped and taken off to a another state for transition to another The Lars Larson Show. guessing what he'll say next. Here's Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday. I want to tell you about something that's been going on. It's been going on in Montana and Wyoming and even Canada. It involves a child, a 14-year-old girl 
who was taken from her family in Montana and taken all the way to Wyoming for what they call gender transition treatment. The other warm, fuzzy term that they like to use for this is gender-affirming care. Well, what they mean is that if you have a 14-year-old girl and she says, I've decided to transition to a different gender, but my parents are not in favor of this. And by the way, the Montana legislature had passed a bill about uh, not quite a year ago uh, called State Bill 99 which banned the medical transitioning of minors. So what ended up happening? In this case, Montana Child Protective Services has now been accused of forcibly transporting a 14-year-old girl from her family in Montana to Wyoming. And what happened in Wyoming? Wyoming has entirely different laws about what they call gender dysphoria or transitioning or transgender than Montana does. Montana says you can't do it. Wyoming says you can. So Montana Child Protective Services, this is an agency of a state, in a state in which they've passed a law that bans the medical transitioning of minors, and Montana Child Protective Services says, we're going to take you to Wyoming for gender dysphoria. And why? The parents had expressed their entire objection to their daughter being treated this way. They did not want her treated that way. The state law of Montana supported their position, but the state agency did not. Now, August of last year, police told the family about a text message from their daughter claiming that she was suicidal. They were notified by the police that their daughter had already ingested drain cleaner and taken an overdose of ibuprofen. Now, the hospital found no evidence of drain cleaner, no evidence of ibuprofen, and they even confirmed that with a toxicology report. Despite that, the girl who said she wanted to be called Leo and use male pronouns was admitted to the hospital for observation. So the girl makes the call or gets sends a text message saying, I'm committing suicide, uh, you know, I can't even imagine what it would be like to swallow drain cleaner because it can it, it can very easily kill you. It certainly do, do a lot of damage to you at the very least. The girl is admitted to the hospital. And during that time, the staff of the hospital heard the parents say, we don't believe in gender dysphoria, gender transition. We're against this. So Montana Child Protective Services and hospital staff just kept telling the parents, we're not listening to your objections. Despite their willingness to provide mental health care, their daughter was then transported from Montana to another state by the Child Protective Agencies of Montana so that she could get, and I would put this in quote marks, treatment. After a last-minute notification of an available bed in Wyoming, this is from Gateway Pundit, and without the parents' consent, CPS and police presented an order, a court order, taking custody of the girl, saying that the parents had refused to provide medical care. They offered to provide mental health care. What they didn't offer to do was turn their little girl, their teenage daughter, into a boy. Communication with their daughter was cut off. Following her transport to Wyoming, reports Gateway Pundit, the Kolstad's daughter was subject to a social transition measure like chest binding, and is now under consultation for birth control to cause puberty blocking. Actions that align with a model criticized as a fast track 
from social to medical transition. And then it takes another uh, twist. The Gateway Pundit reports that the Colstad's daughter may be sent to live with her biological mother in Canada, who's been out of her life for the last seven years. She's 14 years old. Biomom has been gone for half her life. And where Dr. Wallace Wong, who's a psychiatrist with a stance on treating trans kids who are in foster care. So imagine this, because I can tell you this, I make my home in the state of Washington. There is now a state law that allows state officials to effectively kidnap children from their parents, kids who tell their high school counselor, tell a social worker, I want to transition. And even if they're only afraid of their parents' reaction, they haven't seen their parents actually react yet, but they say, I'm afraid my parents will not approve of my gender transition from one gender to another, that in that case, the state will keep secret what is happening to the child. This is where the attitude of people on the left, and especially the LGBTQ community, is that your kids are not under your control. Your kids are under the control of the state. And if the state decides to do this to your child, you as a parent have next to nothing to say about it. We're going to be following this case involving the Colstads in Montana, the kidnapping of their daughter, and I would call it kidnapping. It's effectively kidnapping. And if you tell me, but the child says she wants to go and get this done. She's a child. In the eyes of the law, she can't make adult decisions. And I would just venture to you, and I'd be glad to hear a naysayer on it if somebody wants to argue against the proposition that I'd put this way. As a child, you can't sign a legally binding contract. As a child, you can't decide to smoke or drink or sign up for the military. You can't vote. You can't do a whole bunch of things. And why? The argument has always been, and I think it's solid, that at that age, you are not mature enough to make those kinds of decisions. You can't get a tattoo. In many cases, you can't go to a sun tanning booth. You can't, you can't do any of those things, but they're going to allow you to make a change in gender that will have lifelong consequences and is largely irreversible. Anybody who wants to argue that's a good idea, I'd be glad to hear the argument. In the meantime, let's go to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Let's go first to William. Hey, William, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. What's on your mind? Hey, Lars, thank you. I'm a big fan. I want to talk a little bit thank about you. Iran today. Sure. I heard one of your earlier callers uh, talking a little bit about Iran and how we're kind of close to those drone attacks right now with our personnel. And I'm, I'm a big uh, proponent of World War II and the way that they treated um, actually getting all in on that war. Um, you want to have your enemies say exactly what Admiral Young Moto said, which is, I quote, I fear all we have done is to awaken a, awaken sleeping, a giant sleeping giant and yep. fill him with a terrible resolve. And you know what? We did. Because we waited until we had to get involved. And, uh, you know, we helped England, but we didn't get fully involved until that happened. Right now, we're so spread thin, and I just worry that, you know, we're going to be spread too thin when China, Korea, all those other countries come to life and decide we've been depleted. So that's my story. Is World well, War II is, is a my, better model. My view of this is, is that we could be sending signals to the rest of the world and to some countries in particular 
when Russia began to put troops on the border of Ukraine, Joe Biden could have said, don't do it. He could have said instead he all but invited it when he was asked, well, what if Russia invades Ukraine before they did? And he told the reporter, well, if it's a small invasion, we'll have to decide whether or not we act on it. That's all but an invitation to do what's being done. He could send a message to Iran right now. He could reimpose the sanctions that are there. He just stopped enforcing them and say, Iran, because you funded the Hamas attack on Israel, because you funded the Houthi uh, terrorists to do what they're doing right now in the Red Sea, because you're funding these groups that carried out the drone attack that killed our people, we're not going we're going to reinforce those sanctions. You're not going to be selling oil and we're going to refreeze your assets. He could send them a loud and clear message and maybe he will. He says he's decided to do something. I guess we have to wait and find out what it is. Coming up, we're going to talk a bit about mass shootings and what might actually stop those events. In the news, and it's a terrible tragedy when people die in a situation like that. But I've reminded you, one of the things that I was equipped with was from my friend Dr. John Lott of the Crime Prevention Research Center, on, on whose board I, I serve. Um, he's a longtime researcher on gun issues and, and lately on mass shootings a lot, is that almost all of those mass shootings, north of 90% of them, happen in so-called gun-free zones, even though gun-free zones are a tiny percentage of every place in America. Most places in America are not gun-free zones. It's the gun-free zones where those mass shootings tend to happen. So I'll welcome back to the program Dr. John Lott from the Crime Prevention Research Center. How are you, uh, John? Doing great. Thanks for having me on again. So let's talk about some of these things, because I want to equip my audience with information that they can pass along when people say, well, we have these mass shootings. If we just banned guns or made it a lot harder for citizens to be able to buy them, we'd be able to solve the problem altogether. All right. Well, I mean, I guess the first thing is just to define what we mean by these attacks, because what you'll very frequently hear is that, you know, President Biden will go and say, you know, he'll talk about the Uvalde school shooting and he'll say we've had 550 of those in the last year. Or you'll have uh, the Lewiston town shooting uh, that occurred in December and or, and you'll have CNN and other places say, you know, there have been 500, 600 of those that have occurred over the last year. And it makes people think that they're, you know, 600 of very similar types of cases that are occurring. And what they're using when they're getting their numbers are some, from a gun control group called the Gun Violence Archive. Just so people know, the Gun Violence Archive, uh, about a year and a half ago, was caught lobbying the Centers for Disease Control to remove data from their website on the number of defensive gun uses because the Gun Violence Archive was arguing with the CDC that it was making it more difficult for them to go and pass the types of gun control laws that they wanted completely inappropriate argument to make uh, for a supposedly scientific organization. But in any case, what they define it as is four more people injured and or killed in, a, in, a, in any type of shooting. Uh, and they actually even include three or more people injured, which could be nobody actually even got shot uh, in, in some of these cases. Uh, but the, the problem is, is that 
the vast majority of their cases, over 80 percent, involve rival drug gangs fighting against each other other over drug terms. Uh, most of the rest are things like robberies that are occurring. Now, are, are gangs fighting against each other over drug turf bad and people getting hurt? Yeah, sure. But the causes and solutions for those are very different than something like the Uvalde school shooting or the Lewiston, uh, Maine bar shooting where somebody goes into a public place with the sole purpose of trying to go and, and kill people. And if you look, Oh, since 1998 on, um, and you define a mass public shooting as kind of four more people killed in a public place, not involving some other type of crime like a gang fight over drug turf or a robbery. You're talking about between one and eight of those a year, uh, with on average a little bit over three uh, occurring each year. Now is you know, three or four, is that too many on average? Yeah, sure. It'd be better sure. if it was zero. But there's a reason why they want to try to mix in these gang fights over drug turf uh, and, and robberies in with these other types of cases. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. You know, there may be 28 uh, mass shootings or shootings that occurred in Chicago over the last weekend, but the media doesn't cover each of those. And the reason is, is because the media knows it's not as newsworthy. It's not going to get people as upset to go and have long news stories about two gangs fighting against each other over drug term. Uh, and unfortunately, the media more recently is kind of uh, even some of the shootings that they do occur. They don't make it clear in the news articles, whether it's gangs fighting against each other or, or you know, one of these other types of attacks. And so anyway, that's kind of the first thing just to bring up. To well, sure and, and we when you mentioned that the gun about. violence archive says de a definition of four or more people shot or injured. So, John, right. I, I want people to imagine this. Somebody, a sole person walks into a liquor store to, to hold up the liquor store. He pulls out a gun, right. shots are fired, pass, uh, you know, customers flee out the door. They slip, they right. fall, they get injured. Uh, they get hit with a right. piece of shrapnel. They get injured. And and if you have four of those, the Gun Violence Archive wants to say that incident is now counted along with Uvalde as though they're they're equivalent. And they're not. Uh, right. I don't think anybody no, thinks they are. No, unfortunately, though, the media just relies extremely heavily on the Gun Violence Archive. I mean, the New York Times, the Washington Post. ABC, CNN, everybody, you know, you do a Google News search on any given week and you're going to find lots of major news outlets relying extensively on these guys as the source. The president relies on them constantly as a source for for number of attacks that occur. So it's, you know, it's just really comparing apples and oranges. I mean, what what affects the rate of, of gangs fighting against each other drug turf, as you can explain it going up and down a lot by just looking at the profitability of selling drugs. As the profitability of selling drugs goes up, you see more gangs fighting against each other to control the sale of drugs in different areas. With mass public shootings, what you're talking about is somebody who wants to commit suicide, but wants to commit suicide in a way that's going to get them news attention. And they know if they go to a place where victims can't defend themselves, they're going to be a lot more successful in killing other people. And so 
you read the diaries and manifestos for these mass murders and, you know, the Covenant school shooter, their, their original target was a mall, but they decided not to go there because there are people with guns that could stop them. Or the Buffalo mass murder uh, has an extensive discussion in their manifesto about why they wanted to go to a place with strict gun control because they wanted to go to a place where they didn't believe their victims would be able to go and defend themselves. These people may be crazy in some sense, but they're not stupid. Their goal is to get media coverage, and they know they're going to be able to go and kill more people and get more media coverage if they go to a place where their victims can't defend themselves. So, you know, to mix the two types of cases together, I can understand from a PR perspective why, you know, it kind of makes people more fearful of these attacks. But when you have 21 people killed in Uvalde or you have 18 people killed in, uh, in Lewiston, Lewiston uh, you know, it's, they're just very different cases from what the vast majority of these cases that they're included. That's right. John Lott, Dr. John Lott is president of the Crime Prevention Research Center. It's a pleasure to be with you. And John, thanks very much for the time. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Check out our Instagram feed and tell Alexa to play the Larson Show. Okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. And now, Lars. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic, it's in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. Almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday. You can actually smell and feel the fear on the part of Democrats. They know that Donald Trump is inevitably going to be the GOP nominee. And they know that it's almost inevitable that he's going to be elected president of the United States. And they've tried every trick in their bag to try to shut that down. They tried to impeach him. That didn't work. They impeached him a second time. That didn't work. Then they brought 91 different criminal charges against him. That's not working out too well, at least in part in Georgia, where the prosecutor turns out to be sleeping with her top investigator and channeling hundreds of thousands of dollars of the public's money to the guy she was sleeping with. And that's a problem. Jack Smith case is not going that well in Washington, D.C. And the New York case, well, that's not going anywhere either. So what are they left with? hyperbole and double standards. Let me give you an example. We're in the middle of an existential threat to the United States. It's an invasion of more than 10 million illegal aliens. So what's a Democrat to do? Like Representative Robert Garcia of California. I want you to listen to everything this guy says. He's talking out of his hat. It doesn't make any sense. But any chance to bash Trump because they got almost nothing left to go back to. They can't find out a way to beat him at the polls. They probably won't be able to cheat enough to beat him in November the way they cheated in 2020. So they've got to go out and tell lies. Take a listen. I want to remind the public that Donald Trump and House Republicans also have their own ideas for the border. So let's review the majority's border ideas that they've actually presented. Here they are. 
Donald Trump actually has said that he wants to build alligator moats along the border. That's one of his incredible ideas. Yes. Another idea that Donald Trump has promoted is he actually wants to electrify the border fence and maybe even put some spikes on the border. That's another Donald Trump and MAGA majority border idea. Sounds great. Another idea, which I'm not sure how, how well it would go, is he wants to actually bomb northern Mexico with missiles. That's another Trump well, if it's idea. the drug cartels and, finally, and the human the traffickers, think, what's um, the is problem? The most grotesque is suggestions that instead we should maybe just shoot migrants in the legs as they cross the border. So once again, the Donald Trump and MAGA plan is alligator moats, bombing northern Mexico, shooting migrants in the legs, and electrifying the fence and putting spikes on them. That is the Donald Trump border plan. Now, I got to tell you something. I'm wondering how many Americans hear that and they realize we are being invaded. Ten million people coming into our country, 10,000 per day at the current rate. Some days it's 12,000. And they hear about alligator moats and electrified fences and spikes on the top and maybe bombing the Mexican drug cartels that are doing so many evil things. You know, I didn't hear the bit about shooting him in the legs. I've never heard Donald Trump say that, but I'll take Representative Garcia's word for it. What I don't like is this. Representative Garcia does something that so many liberals do when it comes to talking about immigration issues. They want to call people who are coming into our country illegally, working illegally, identifying themselves illegally, committing a disproportionate number of crimes, in many cases, not paying their taxes. Why? Because many of them work under the table. After all, they have no legal right to work in the United States. Now, I employ three people. We check to make sure they're legally in the country. Do employers who employ illegals do that? Of course not, because then they'd be knowingly employing somebody in violation of America's immigration laws. Now, the sneaky way they get around it is they say, I didn't know he was an illegal alien. The fact that he couldn't speak English, didn't have picture ID from the United States, didn't have a birth certificate or anything else. I just took his word when he signed that I-9 form when he got the job. It's a sneaky way around it. But do the Democrats realize that when they read off a list that includes alligator moats and razor wire and spikes on the top and electrified wire, that an awful lot of Americans are standing up and cheering. They're saying, we've got to protect our country. It's the reason that Joe Biden bit off more than he could chew. Because way back last week, Joe Biden threw down that gauntlet against Texas and said, how dare you put razor wire here? Why, we're going to go cut all your razor wire because the Supreme Court said we could. And it didn't do them much good. Texas just said, fine, you cut our razor wire, we'll put up more. And that is the right response. But these people don't seem to understand the country's being invaded. And the very people that Democrats claim they best represent, that is the poor, the downtrodden, lower income workers, blue collar workers, they see through this as well. The blue collar worker who knows I may lose my job because my boss will hire somebody who's illegally in the country because it's cheaper. It saves them money. They can abuse a worker who's here and feeling desperate. They can get them cheaper. They'll work harder. And the blue-collar workers of America say, that's not fair to us. I mean, even 
Even the labor unions seem to be waking up to this nonsense, that what you're doing is you're putting the jobs of American citizens at risk. You're putting the health care systems. We've documented the fact that there are hospitals and health care institutions in this country that are about to collapse under the weight of illegal aliens. So when somebody starts talking about alligator moats and electrified wire and spikes on the top of the fence, I think an awful lot of people say, yeah, we should do that and whatever it takes to make sure that people don't come into our country illegally. And Joe Biden is absolutely tone deaf about this. In fact, just today, I'm going to tell you this. I don't know how many of the mainstream media are going to run this comment, but Joe Biden was asked one more time. Even the media, the mainstream legacy left wing liberal media has started to ask him questions and they ask him about the border today. And he said, I've done all I can do. You know, what a load of hogwash, because you understand Donald Trump handed off to Joe Biden, a country that had a relatively secure southern border. And Joe Biden bragged to the media about how he had reversed everything that Donald Trump had done. He'd given executive orders and simply said, no more remain in Mexico. He told the Border Patrol, start getting away to facilitate all of these people across the border. They know that he sabotaged what Donald Trump did. And all he'd have to do to correct that is go back to the Trump policies. But he won't do it. He won't do it because he doesn't want to. And there are powerful people on both sides of the aisle, both Democrats who need the illegal aliens for the votes they're going to provide or they think they're going to provide this coming November. We're going to catch them on that, including Arizona, where they want to make it possible for illegal aliens to vote in the presidential election. I'm not exaggerating. And now Americans are seeing if we go to the airport, illegal aliens get to go right past TSA and they get a special trip onto the plane with no picture ID whatsoever. Do you think how dim a Democrat would you have to be to say, well, that's okay. We should give the illegal aliens special consideration. Illegal aliens get more rights than American citizens do. I have a feeling an awful lot of Americans are not feeling terribly sympathetic toward the border jumpers. Glad to be with you on a Tuesday. Always glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. transmit disease through the radio trust me you don't want what he has more with lars larson welcome back to the lars larson show well the world health organization an organization that i don't trust very much at all has sounded the alarm about falling vaccination rates is that partly a direct consequence of the pandemic itself and of course the actions and inactions of government i thought i'd put that to our friend dr henry miller physician and molecular biologist he's now at the american council on science and health he was the founding director of the FDA's Office on Biotechnology. Doc, welcome back. Great to be with you, Lars, as always. You wrote about this in the uh, South Florida Sun Sentinel, and it's something you and I have talked about before, that Americans lost an awful lot of their faith in the entire medical establishment during COVID, 
and uh, during the pandemic and uh, and because of the actions and inactions of people at local, state and federal uh, health organizations and agencies, didn't they? They, they did. They did indeed. Um, what, what I wrote about, though, was stimulated not by anything that WHO had to say. I, I don't like them much either, frankly, uh, but by an article uh, by the FDA commissioner, Robert Califf, and one of his de- deputies um, about the tipping point that we may be reaching in vaccination. Well, but are these people coming to the realization that they and people before them created most of this problem and they could have avoided it? Or are they just blissfully ignoring the fact that that's why an awful lot of us in the public don't trust them? Because until well, they realize that, they're not going to be able to fix it, are they? Well, I, I, that, that's, that's moot. I, I think there are things that they need to do. That's uh, what I'm saying. It, it, in, in their article, I think they proposed uh, a, a very tepid, inadequate remedy. And that was that uh, the responsibility for education about vaccines should fall on health care providers uh, from front office workers in doctors' offices to physicians themselves and uh, and nurses and so on. That, that's really not adequate uh, because not enough people are in uh, frequent enough contact with those people. No kidding. Uh, and, and, and Especially need, healthy people. Right. right, exactly. And and so what we need is the kind of advertising that you had on your program just a couple minutes ago about ending child hunger. Uh, we also need to uh, have uh, advertising campaigns about ending childhood preventable illnesses. And in, in my article, I talked about uh, uh, the history of measles. Um, we had... Uh, before the availability of good measles vaccines, we had three to four million cases of measles a year, around 48,000 hospitalizations, and as many as 500 deaths. And uh, But in, in 2000, after an aggressive vaccination campaign, that was the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, MMR, um, we, we declared measles to be eradicated because there had not been a single case in the United States for a year. Um, but we had 56 cases last year because of backsliding on vaccination, and we've had more than a dozen already in 2024. So this is just not good. This is not necessary to expose kids to a, uh, a preventable disease that could be lethal and can cause sterility and, and other, other uh, problems like encephalitis. It's just not good. We're better than that in this country. Well, and, and Doc, I got to tell you, I think there are two things that need to happen. One is a full mea culpa by the medical establishment, whether you want to call that the CDC, the FDA, all these other agencies. We screwed up badly, and we need to earn your trust back. If I got in trouble because I lied to my boss over and over again, and then he caught me out in the lies, just simply saying, well, you should believe me from this point forward, is not going to get anywhere. Uh, unless you get a mea culpa. And the second thing, I suppose, is that you're going to, as you said, you're going to have to advertise that. But who's going to be the front person for that? If it's going to be anybody from FDA or CDC or any uh, agency like that, 
You've already got people who distrust all those people, including the folks at the front desk at the doctor's office, which, as you point out, if you're relatively healthy, how often do you go and see the doctor? It's not very often at all. And and then when you do, do you trust what they're telling you based on the fact that, that uh, I believe, and you and I have had discussions about this, you don't always agree with me, but there are times I point out to you that there was information that was deliberately held back. I mean, for example... Even you and I have talked about the small incidents, the statistically small incidents of myocarditis and pericarditis associated with the mRNA shot, what I call the jab. And uh, go back and find out that immediate in December of 2020, when the shots were just being first given out, they were already getting reports of uh, pericarditis and myocarditis. And you say, well, should you have expected that? Yeah, it turns out the people who developed the shot said you probably should expect some of this. But then when reporters and the public went to the officials and said in, in April and May, months into it, they said, we're seeing these reports. And they said, oh, we're not seeing anything like that. I ran a soundbite from Ro Rochelle Walensky the other night, uh, and she said, oh, well, we've heard something about that, but really we, we don't, we're not uh, taking any action at all. And it turns out they had already crafted a memo. They were supposed to send it out of the, uh, I think it's the uh, SAT uh, special action bulletin. It's a, a bulletin that can be sent out by the medical establishment. And then they said, we don't want to send this out because if we send it out, the people will hear this information and they'll react incorrectly to it from their point of view. That's not the kind of thing that builds trust. And I think, I think they need a full mea culpa on that. I, I agree with you there. I absolutely agree with you. Uh, and, and once we clear the decks with that, then we have to, um, we have to promulgate the positive and accurate message, which is that these vaccines work very well at, at uh, COVID vaccines work at preventing um, severe disease, hospitalization, and death. And the uh, many of the other vaccines, like measles and shingles, are superb vaccines that uh, prevent uh, all sorts of serious illnesses uh, and deaths. And as I said a moment ago, advertising works. And so we need public service announcements. Um, uh, a Super Bowl public service announcement that shows um, President Biden and former President <laughs> Trump and you getting shingles vaccinations in the middle of the Super Bowl. I wouldn't and, put Joe in there because I think there are a few uh, uh, more untrustworthy characters in America than Joe Biden right now. I, I agree with well, you on and, that completely. And, and can I point out to you a non-medical aspect to this? When sure. you're telling Americans you've got to make sure we protect against disease, one of the first responses, and I know that liberals will say, well, that's just a conservative, is, so did you just let 10 million unvetted, unvaccinated people into the country without any kind of screening whatsoever that we ordinarily would do with people emigrating to America? Yes, we did. Are you going to keep doing that? Joe Biden would say, yep. In fact, as of today, he said, I've done all I can do. So you say you're telling me I should protect the, the country against disease with vaccination while you're letting 10 million unvaccinated, unvetted people into the country. That doesn't make sense, does it? It doesn't make sense. And, and I agree with you there. And I am a strong proponent of impeaching Mayorkas, who I think has gotten away with murder, literally, uh, with his murder in, 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 in action. And let's not forget who was put in charge 
of the southern border early in the Biden administration. It was the vice president, Kamala Harris, who, 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 as a Californian, I can tell you, is a complete idiot, incompetent, inappropriate, uh, uh, good for absolutely nothing. Anyway, that's a different subject. Um, well, but- all I'm saying is that that policy bears on the other problem you're talking about. When I hear about a lot of measles, and I said, well, you let nine or ten million people into the country with no medical screening at all. What did you think was going to happen? That's that's a thorny problem uh, that we need to solve, definitely. But but getting people vaccinated should be easier because advertising public service announcements work. And uh, and uh, again, having you and Taylor Swift uh, and Oprah Winfrey vaccinated in a Super Bowl public service announcement, <laughs> I think would go a long, long way. Interesting idea. Dr. Henry Miller from the American Council on Science and Health. You got the Lars Larson. The Lars Larson Show. Are you looking for more in this world? Exploiting your First Amendment right every single day. This is Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get to your phone calls and emails. John writes in, Lars, I'm sure you're as sick as I am regarding Iran's terrorist activities. Where can we find a spine for Joe Biden? Is he afraid if we take direct action against Iran, Russia will get involved? I'm making an assumption, but aren't the arms provided to the terrorists largely coming from Russia? And isn't the real reason for the so-called pro-Palestinian movement to oust Israel from the region? Yes, it is. Uh, Once the Jewish contingent is removed from the region, the region would be open to full-fledged communism domination of the region and control of the regional oil fields. Harsh direct action needs to take place against Iran if they bestow the moniker of the great Satan on America. Maybe it's time to show them what the great Satan can accomplish when pressed. Signed, John. To your calls. And let's start with a naysayer, as we like to. Darren's on the line from Michigan listening on WILS. Hey, Darren, what do you and I disagree about today that makes you a naysayer? Well, uh, it's not total naysayer, but I just want to throw out a little tidbit. I unfortunately haven't been able to catch a lot of your show. I had uh, parent-teacher conferences. Uh, But as far as the uh, drone... It killed three of our soldiers. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, Marine Jean-Pierre struggled finding that word, so she settled on folks. Uh, but, okay, uh, according to what I heard last night, it sounded like uh, their drone, the attack drone, kind of piggybacked and hid behind our drone. It did. Well, okay. hid is not... As I understand it, I've done as much research as I can find written about it since it happened. But what they did was when we send, and because our guys send drones out as well, probably mostly for surveillance, because imagine what it's like to have an FOB like Tower 22. You send a drone out and you look for the bad guys. But when that drone goes out and when it comes back in, the electronic countermeasures that are designed to take down an enemy drone have to be turned off while your drone comes back. Well, as I said yesterday, 
based on everything I've been able to find out from Pentagon, from other news reports, it sounds like the jihadis figured that out. They said, well, all we've got to do is fly our drone in at about the same time, not necessarily hiding visually or hiding on radar, but following fairly close behind the drone that's coming in. We turn off the countermeasures that are designed to take down drones, which would take down our own drone if they weren't turned off, and their drone right. is able to penetrate the defenses. Yeah, and, you know, so somehow, obviously, they knew what time this drone, our drone, was supposed to return to base. And, uh, well, and, and again, with the, the radar we have now, uh, it should have shown two blips, even though, you know, whatever the IFF was turned off the tracking, the unique signal, and I know you were talking yesterday, this, I guess, is where I'm well, you know, you talked about, well, it adds weight to the thing. Well, how much range does our do our drones have? You know, they're not like ones my neighbors fly around. No, and they're not. They go, you know, it, actually, if it goes out of range, it has an automatic, you know, go home. You're, you're right. But, but again, Darren, what are you trying to say? I mean, are you trying to say the drone attack well, didn't happen or it did happen and it happened that way or it was an inside job or what? I'm just trying to figure out how... Their drone was able to get in because, again, you know, think about it. Our cell phones have tracking devices. They don't have that much, you know, with a unique signal. A I would guess that it depends on the size of the drone. We've got drones that are the size of small aircraft. You know, there are some that have persist. They can be refueled. And then we have, and then our military uses very small drones that can be carried in a backpack, launched in the air that don't weigh much at all because they're designed to go out with a camera and take a look around and look for where the, where are the bad guys. And so I don't know which size drone we had flying back in. Bottom line is they managed to get a drone past our defenses and attack our guys. And that to me seems like the bottom line. Let's go to uh, Jose in California. Hey, Jose, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. How's it going, Lars? Great it's show. It's going very well. Thank you for the call, by the way. No, I, you know, the uh, free medical, medical for the illegal aliens uh, here in California, what, what pissed me off the other day, I saw a TikTok, and they're showing like a seven-year-old out there you know, on these row crops and saying, this is why we need the, the you know, health care for the illegals. And that was, that's a bunch of crap. In uh, April of, I mean, yeah, in uh, April of uh, 2019, uh, my uh, grandma passed away. I'm Mexican. And uh, so I was in uh, San Luis, uh, Mexico, which is on the border of Arizona, San Luis, Arizona, and they were getting ready uh, with all the Mexicans coming across the border that yeah. are coming over legally with their visas, hopping on, because uh, I, I work in the ag industry. So Okay, I, I appreciate all the background, but Jose, you're going to run yourself out of time before you get to your point. So basically, uh, they keep these immigrant workers you know, from Yuma, Arizona, and work them all the way up to Monterey. They, and then they Who take is them they? Back. Who is they? The employers here of all these vegetable crops throughout the Central Coast. 
Yeah. So they so, they will hold they'll hold on to them, you know, and and then ship them back. So why do we have to have health care for the migrant workers that are here just temporarily? Th- that's not that's not what it's for. You know, you understand what's happening. We have 10 million people who've come into this country. I haven't looked up a number recently, Jose, but I think the total number of people who work in America in in agriculture of that type is about 800,000 people. So when you have uh, 12 million, well, actually the Yale study said 22 to 30 million illegal aliens who are already here, and you have another 10 million come in in the last uh, you know, uh, three years under Biden. And then you say, well, we need these people for row crops and agriculture. And you say total employment, including some Americans in that sector is 800,000. And you say, well, it sounds like we've got the 22 million to 30 million that were already here, plus another 10 million under Joe. That's 40 million. Obviously, all of those people are not doing agriculture. They're doing other Correct. things. And if you, they're doing construction, they're doing truck driving, they're doing almost every field that Americans are in. And they don't plan to leave. And when you talk about H-1B visa workers who come in under a formal arrangement and then go back, these are not those people. These people want to come here and they want to stay because the jobs pay very, very well. And I've used the example before that when Kamala Harris said, well, we have to solve the underlying problem. I looked up what the average worker makes in Guatemala. It's $1,600 a year, not a month, not a week, $1,600 a year. What can any worker make in America? About 15 bucks an hour. And if you work any kind of hard physical job, you may make $25 an hour. So if it's 1600 a year in Guatemala and it's 50, uh, 40 to $50,000 a year here, how are you going to get people to go home? They're not going to go home. They say, I'm exactly. making, you know, I'm making 20 times what I made at home. Why would I ever leave? But they're not legal and they don't have health care. So then the Democrats say, let's give them health care at the ex- It's not free. It's at the expense of citizens. And they'll and, and then they'll love us forever and they'll vote for us in elections. That's what's going That's on. Right. Yeah, no, you're right. But, you know, that TikTok is really what set me off going this isn't this, this healthcare isn't for this guy <laughs> no it's not for the 81 year old guy although he's a concern too but jose i'd encourage you to drop tiktok it's a chicom spy device go to instagram instead and check out our instagram feed coming up in a moment is texas governor greg abbott's push to keep the border secure unconstitutional or is it exactly what a governor of an american state ought to do that's to adjust your volume. He's just that loud. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday. I thought we'd talk to our friend Hans von Spakowski, Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Hans, welcome back. Lars, nice to talk to you again. I've been telling my audience, uh, I said, I think this is fantastic. You've got the Supreme Court that says, go ahead, cut that Texas razor wire. And you had Greg Abbott, the governor, saying, yeah, you know what? Cut all you want. We'll put up more. And they're doing exactly that. And then last week, I think it was Wednesday, uh, uh, President Biden, spineless as he usually is, 
throws down the gauntlet and says, I'm telling Texas, comply with what I want done. Give that park in Eagle Pass, Texas, Shelby Park, back to the Border Patrol by tomorrow at, I think, noon or something, uh, or else. And even my producer, Joel, said, or else what? And, and of course, the deadline came and it went. And it, I think it's now been forgotten because that was last week and this is this week. Tell me this. I want your view on the constitutionality of what Greg Abbott is doing. And uh, the fact that Joe Biden admits as of today, he says, I've done everything I can with the border. Well, which is less than zero as far as I'm concerned. So far, I don't think Texas has done anything uh, that is unconstitutional. Uh, They haven't violated any uh, federal immigration laws either. People need to realize that uh, the fencing that they've put up, the barbed wire fencing, it's not on federal property. It's all been put on state-owned property or private property where the private property owners uh, told the state, yeah, please go ahead and put it up. So they haven't done anything to hinder hinder, um, enforcement of federal immigration law. And that, of course, is some of the key language that would be used in any any kind of case. Now, uh, if they started doing things such as um, taking away illegal aliens who the Border Patrol has in custody. Well, that, of course, would be a problem, but they're not doing anything like that. All, all they've been doing is putting up fencing and making it more difficult for illegal aliens to get into the United States. Well, that actually helps enforce federal law. It doesn't hinder it. It's the Biden administration that's hindering enforcement. Well, let me ask you about something as sort of a side issue, but if I owned a piece of property in Texas, I don't, but if I did, um, if the Border Patrol wants to enforce immigration law, are they free to come onto my property without my permission? They are, uh, they are within a certain distance of the border, okay. you know, because they do have responsibility for the border. So if you've got property that's right uh, along the, the border of the United States, well, yeah, they, they've got the ability uh, to do that. But, for example, if I was a ranch owner there and I put up a big fence yep. on the I'm boundary going. of my property, <laughs> uh, the federal government would not have the right to come in and cut it. No, and see, that's what I'm thinking of, because in this case, it's, it's odd, but the Customs and Border Patrol Agency is not enforcing immigration law. They're actually doing the reverse. I don't know if there's a fancy Latin lawyer term for that, but they're actually subverting uh, immigration law. And I wondered whether their rights and privileges change if if a, if a law enforcement agency like Border Patrol uh, does something that actually subverts American immigration law. Do their rights and privileges to go out and demand anything from anyone sort of evaporate? Well, I think what it leads to is what was happening today, which was approval in the House uh, committee of articles of impeachment on Alexander Mayorkas, the head of DHS. And uh, that's because if you look at the two articles of impeachment, he has been directing uh, members of the Border Patrol and other people at the Department of Homeland Security not just to not enforce federal law, but he has been directing them to actually violate federal law. And that is grounds for impeachment. Because I understand that people might feel sympathetic. I don't feel sympathetic. But if somebody wades across the Rio Grande River 
and they get to the other side and they find a, an embankment and a bunch of razor wire, I, you know, I'd say, well, look, wade back across. You can't come in. Right. That's it. I mean, I've I've been to plenty of government installations as a reporter and in other, you know, t- at other times where I've been told you can't go in there. You're not allowed to go in there. And I don't get to say, well, yes, I can help me in. And they have literally cut the wires to allow people to come in when it's not as though they're jumping off a cliff. If they go back, you waded across the river, wade back the other direction. You can't come in here. And Americans are told that all the time. Yeah, I've driven through uh, in New Mexico through the big uh, Los Alamos lab uh, property that's there. And they're told and you're told drive on this road is a public road. Don't stop. Don't get off. Don't take pictures. And for God's sake, don't co- don't climb the fence. You're not allowed to go in those places. And they're owned by the country that I'm a citizen of. So Americans are told this all the time. And yet the Border Patrol says, well, you know, if these people wade across the river, it's our job to cut the wire and make it easy for them to come in. That that does seem like impeachment territory to me. Well, it is. And frankly, look, it's even worse. The The district court in the case that uh, Texas filed against the Biden administration, uh, look, here's a quote of what the judge found, that federal agents were, quote, cutting multiple holes in the concertina wire for no apparent purpose other than to allow migrants easier entrance further inland. And they not, then they put in uh, a climbing rope so that the aliens could get up uh, the bank and into the U.S. Not only that, but there was video of Border Patrol uh, boats in the middle of the Rio Grande, just sitting there while aliens, one after another, waded past them, and they just sat there passively doing absolutely nothing to stop them. Look, the fact that the union represented the Border Patrol has already said, look, we stand with Texas, we don't stand with Joe, which I think is kind of extraordinary. But Hans, let's go back to the law for a moment. Say I got a call from somebody who said, hey, Lars, I'd like to come into the United States and stay. But I'll fly into Vancouver, B.C. Could you and your wife drive up, pick me up, and then get me across the border? If I do that, I'm committing a federal crime. I'm aiding and abetting the violation of federal immigration laws. Is the Border Patrol not doing the very same thing? Well, I think they are, but uh, no no, uh, U.S. Justice Department lawyer under Merrick Garland is going to obviously prosecute them for doing that. Because this administration wants an open border. They want these aliens coming across the border. Well, they do, and they're getting it right now. And now now Joe Biden, who a week ago was saying, I've known the border had a problem for 10 years. Well, then why did you make it worse uh, in January of 21 when you signed all those executive orders to reverse the Trump policies? And why don't you go back to the Trump policies? But he's declared as of today, I've done all that I can do. Hans, thank you very much. That's Hans von Spakowski, Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Glad to get your emails. Talk at LarsLarson.com. Check out my Instagram feed. Yes, you'll find out I have a face for radio. And tell Alexa to play the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. In Iraq, our truck hit a road... It's going to happen. Stand by playback. And now, Lars. Real Red Meat Radio.
I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. I almost lost my wife, my 67 Corvette. And my cat, Lars Larson. Welcome back to Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm always glad to get your calls. You might have noticed that Joe Biden seems more than a little bit uh, Mr. Magoo when it comes to dealing with the problems that he himself has helped to create in the Middle East. And now, now we have three members of the United States military murdered by a terrorist attack at a place called Tower 22 in Jordan. That is the jumping off point for U.S. forces if they end up going into Syria. And was Joe Biden doing about it? Well, not much, but he did tell reporters today that he's made a decision about what the U.S. response will be. He just isn't sharing it with any of us. I don't think he should share it with the bad guys either. I thought it was a perfect opportunity to talk to our friend Joe Kent, retired Special Forces warrant officer and gold star husband of fallen senior Navy Chief Shannon Kent, who was murdered by ISIS, just like those three service members from Georgia who died over this past weekend. He's now running for Congress, and he joins me now. Joe, welcome back. Hey, Lars. Thanks for having me on. Is Joe Biden just absolutely clueless about what's going on in the Middle East, what brought this about, and about the role he's played in helping to lay the groundwork for a lot of what's what's going wrong there? You know, it's easy to give Biden a pass as just being clueless uh, because of his age and just the way he, he comports himself. But there's no way that we, we didn't see this coming. Many of us have said that this was a tragic but inevitable conclusion if we continued to leave our forces deployed to Iraq, Syria, Jordan, very vulnerable to these Iranian-backed militias. And we just got to be clear, when, when Biden says these are Iranian-backed militias operating out of Iraq and Syria, that means those are U.S. taxpayer-funded militias controlled by Iran, but operating uh, by the Iraqi government that we directly fund. So we funded these militias that killed our service members. So th- our troops had already been attacked 160 times, and we took very little action. We bombed some warehouses and killed some, I guess, militia security guards south of Baghdad, but the Iranians do not respond to that. They're most certainly not going to change their calculus. So we've got to get serious and we've got to just get our, our troops out of there. This idea that we're going to escalate the war further uh, by going to war directly with Iran, like Lindsey Graham and some of the other neocons are advocating, that's incredibly dangerous as well. We can hit back, but we can't hit back uh, and fight on the enemy's terms by leaving our troops in these vulnerable locations. Well, Joe, let me ask you, since you brought it up, Is there a reason we have people in Jordan and have this staging point for putting forces in Syria? We're not at war in Jordan. We're not at war in Syria. We got people on the ground. And I remember Donald Trump, President Trump at the time, tried to order all of our forces out of Syria. And he had people on the ground and people within the uh, bureaucracy who said, yeah, the president said take them out, but we're not going to. And they just they just simply countermanded his orders. Do we, is there any good reason for having American service members on the ground in places like Jordan and Syria? No, there, there, there's no reason, Lars. And, and Trump attempted to get our troops out. That's actually my late wife was killed 
uh, a month after he attempted to get our troops out. And the reason why he said, hey, we're going to bring the troops out of Syria and then eventually Iraq and all these other locations was because we had met our objective. We took away all the ground that ISIS controlled. And as you pointed out, that's when the unelected bureaucrats who control a ton of uh, things in Washington, D.C., but in particular when, we, when it comes to national security and defense, these unelected bureaucrats are very powerful, and they committed bureaucratic slow roll, left our troops there, and then they morphed the mission into, well, maybe ISIS will come back, but we also need to be here to counter Iranian influence or maybe even Russian influence, as if we need an excuse to get into a shooting war with, with Russia or Iran. And so really we've left these troops here as bait, waiting for uh, the Iranians to attack them and then for us to say, well, that, that does it. Now we need to go and we need to broaden this war and go to war with Iran. It's absolutely foolish. And we, and we, the American people, gain nothing from it. We're losing troops on the Jordanian-Syrian border. Meanwhile, our own border is wide open and American citizens are being killed by fentanyl and we're under an invasion. The whole, the whole scenario, the whole situation is just completely preposterous. Joe, are you saying that, uh, I mean, they're effectively trying to create a Gulf of Tonkin uh, kind of incident so you can say there's our predicate for the war? Yes, I am. I, I mean, look, I, I was over there in, in Iraq for a, a, a long time. I was there in 2017 as we were wrapping things up um, against ISIS, and all of us were reporting back to our hires that, look, this uh, monster that is the Iraqi government controlled by Iran that we've equipped, that we've given tons of technology to, this is going to come back to bite us, but it all fell on deaf ears. The bureaucratic slow roll was, was very, very heavy. Those reports wouldn't get up. When Trump attempted to make it happen from the top down, he was then thwarted. Biden comes in and he brings in the Iran, uh, the Iran deal national security team. And the next thing that you know, we've, we've got this horrible situation where we're leaving our troops exposed in this area. We can't justify what they're doing there. And now we see what the purpose is. The purpose is to, to have them be attacked and then justify, you know, a broader war that only really benefits the military industrial complex. But then long term, it benefits China, who's in an alliance with Iran, because then we stay even more bogged down, spending more resources, uh, not against China, our, our actual foe. Between that and the bleeding of our industrial, our military industrial base in uh, the war in Ukraine, we're spread incredibly thin, and China is in a great position to take us down either economically or to make advances in the Pacific. Joe, I wanted to get your comment on this. I read this fascinating piece probably a week ago now, and they said there's been a major change in war in general, and, and the example they gave is they said, look, Prior to this year, or maybe even last month, if you wanted to run a naval blockade anywhere on planet Earth, no matter who you were, you had to have a gigantic, a good-sized navy of your own. But the Houthi terrorists managed to find a way to run a major naval blockade of a huge amount of the world's shipping, and they don't have a single boat. Yeah, that's right. With drone technology and missile technology, uh, really kind of pioneered by the, the Iranians, they've been able to do that. Now, if you remember, the Houthis weren't much of a threat. I spent some time in Yemen as well. They were a local problem. Um, but once Iran got enough money from Joe Biden, the next thing you know, the Houthis all of a sudden are given this drone technology. They're given ballistic missile technology. And if you control those choke points, like Yemen's in a strategic location along the Red Sea, coincidentally, China's also making major inroads in, in Djibouti and the Horn of Africa. But in those, those those tight choke points, then it's it's much easier to use that relatively low technology type of gear like drones and, and ballistic missiles to have a massive strategic effect that before you would have needed an entire you know fleet and an actual standing navy. 
So, yeah, I mean, look, anytime that we give Iran money, they're going to give their proxies uh, funds and they're going to give them training and they're going to use that to, to their strategic advantage. And that's exactly what's happening right now on the Red Sea. And by the way, Joe Biden didn't get rid of the sanctions that Trump put in on Iran. He just stopped enforcing them. And so the Iranians sell oil and you say, but we have sanctions on that. Yeah, but they're not being enforced by Joe Biden. So he could turn them back on tomorrow if he chose to. And he could choke off the money supply to Iran. It would not only choke off the money, but it would also send a message to Iran. We're not going to let you do this kind of thing. And he's chosen not to do that. So it'll be interesting to see where he goes. Uh, Joe Kent is running for the third congressional district in Washington state. Uh, Joe, we look forward to your election to Congress, and we appreciate the time. That's Joe Kent, retired Special Forces warrant officer and the Gold Star husband of fallen senior Navy chief Shannon Kent, who was murdered by ISIS. Back in a moment, you're listening to The Lars Larson Show. strong Wi-Fi signal. His voice will reach you. This is Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails in a moment. The other day, I got a young lady who called me up, and she said, listen, I just can't forgive Donald Trump for all that extra money that he added to our national debt. And I said to the young lady, I said, well, hold on a second. Presidents don't spend money. The Congress appropriates the money. The president can veto the budget. He can also sign the budget, but that's all he does. And I know that uh, there was a time in Trump's first two years in office when he had an all-Republican, or not all, but a majority Republican House and a majority Republican Senate. And the Republican House, under the, uh, under the so-called leadership of rhino Republican Paul Ryan, handed him a budget that was about $300 billion bigger than what he had requested, because even the Republicans spend too much money. So I thought we'd talk about where we sit right now and where we're headed. And Chris Edwards joins me now, who's an economic scholar at the Cato Institute. Chris, welcome back to the program. Hey, thanks a lot for having me, Lars. So we're in real trouble when it comes to the national debt at $34 trillion with a $2 trillion deficit this year and apparently multi-trillion dollar deficits off into the future unless something changes. Is that fair to say? It's absolutely crazy. I mean, this year the federal government's going to spend 6.4 trillion and then raise 4.8 trillion in taxes. So you got a massive deficit. So that's like an individual who earns 48 grand a year in wages and he goes out every year and he spends 64 grand and puts the extra money on credit cards. I mean, and he does it year after year after year. It's obviously not going to end well. So we are headed for a giant financial crash. Um, at the federal level, and it's going to pull down the overall economy, something like we saw in Greece a decade or so ago. Uh, it's really, it's the most extraordinarily irresponsible situation the federal government has ever been in with its budget. The debt uh, is reaching record uh, uh, historic highs in, in, the, in the nation's over two centuries of history. It's a crazy situation. Well, and Chris, I want people to know this because a lot of them may think, well, but a lot of that debt, that's in 20 or 30 year notes. 
But about a third of it, isn't it about a third that rolls over every couple, three years? Oh, that's right. We've seen, in the, and because of that, we've seen just in the last couple of years with higher, you know, federal borrowing rates were around 0%, but they're up now around 4 or 5%. And the federal government interest payments have skyrocketed just in the last couple of years because of that. I mean, we're going to be spending more on interest than we are on national defense in just a few years. So that's the, the level of irresponsibility. I think I've tried to characterize it to my audience because big numbers snow me. But but if you look at it this way, I think it's $69 billion a month or more than $2 billion a day is just interest on the debt. So the first $2 million the federal government collects in taxes every day from all of us goes just to pay the interest before we've funded a single thing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. And, you know, this is already slowing um, economic growth. We know that by looking across other countries, countries with higher debt, their economies grow slower. Uh, it's all the cost is being pushed on young people. They're going to have to pay higher taxes to send uh, checks to the creditors, many of whom who live abroad. And so that reduces their standard of living. Uh, and we're risking a giant financial crash. So what I've suggested in the new Cato uh, Institute paper is, look, a lot of this spending the federal government does K-12 school spending, housing subsidies, welfare subsidies, you know, even if you believe in government and you want to do that sort of stuff, it should be done at the state level and not the federal level. And the reason is because state governments are required to balance their budget every year, and they generally do balance their budgets every year, they're, they're forced to make trade-offs. You know, the politicians are forced to balance the taxes with the spending. The problem at the federal level is there's no limit on debt. They can keep on borrowing, and so they're just they're completely completely not disciplined. And we see this year after year. Well, in fact, when you talk about spending on education, I, I think some people think that the schools are paid for by the federal government. The last time I checked big schools, e even the big school districts get what, maybe 10% of the money that runs the school district um, from the feds. That's, and the rest right. of it comes from local and state taxes, right? That's right. It's mainly state and local. And in fact, a lot of the federal go government money supposedly goes to disadvantaged schools. But, you know, I had my kids in public schools in northern Virginia in one of the, the, the wealthiest counties in the nation. And it got a lot of this federal um, you know, subsidy money for supposedly disadvantaged school districts. So it's completely ridiculous. I, I talk about in my new study how uh, Canada, for example, has no federal department of education and never has had. It's in the Constitution. The federal government does not subsidize the schools uh, north of the border. And Canadian schools are much better on these international tests than U.S. schools. So the idea that the Federal Department of Education helps education is completely fallacious. So right there, what is it, $80 billion a year to Federal Department of Ed? So basically a trillion dollars in the next 10 years. We could cut that tomorrow, tell all the school districts that are currently getting 8 or 10% of their budget from the feds, tighten up your belt, just like private companies do. UPS just announced they're laying off 12,000 people. They're not doing that for fun. They're doing it because times are tight, revenue's tight. If, if you told every big school district in America, you're going to have to lose that federal money. There's a trillion 
trillion dollars we could cut out of the spending of the next 10 years. And that would be Absolutely. just one and I'll start. give you another very similar example is, is, is public housing and low income housing subsidies. The federal government spends around 60 trillion a year on that. But I mean, public housing, that's purely a local activity. You know, I mean, near where I live in uh, Northern Virginia, there's public housing. And frankly, that should be if you want to do that stuff, it should be funded by cities and counties, not the federal government. There's absolutely no advantage in getting the federal government involved in all the spending stuff. And, and, and as you pointed out, uh, we, you know, the federal government can't afford it anymore. I mean, a lot of these programs are put in uh, in Lyndon Johnson's 1960s. Uh, and, you know, but times have changed. We just can't afford that stuff anymore. All right. Any other suggestions? And what else should we do to get this budget back in balance? Because Joe Biden and the Democrats seem to have no inclination to go that direction at all. Well, I'll give you another one. Urban transit aid. I mean, the federal government, you know, gives subsidies to the New York, uh, you know, New York subway system and Boston subway system and these silly light rail projects across the country. It's 20 billion a year. Complete waste of federal money. Uh, most of those projects don't make any sense at all. Um, and so, you know, again, that's a purely local activity. You know, if New York wants good sub- sub- uh, subways, good for them. They should fund them themselves. But, Chris, there's an addiction that happens because I've seen local police agencies say, well, yeah, our radios are inadequate, but we'll have to wait till we get a federal grant to buy new ones. Uh, or, you know, agencies say we have to buy some new buses, but they have to be funded by the federal government. It's as though everybody's discovered there's a big pie and they've decided, you know, we don't want to have to pay for this stuff in our local community or a state level. Uh, we'll, we'll wait till Uncle Sugar bails us out. And they've all started to jump into that. You're exactly right, Lars. And indeed, I've looked at many examples of that where, you know, these local governments are demanding things that they should be building themselves. Like, you know, they need a new fire station. And so rather than building the new fire station right away with their own money, they wait years and years and years until they can can get their congressman to put in an earmark in a federal bill. It makes absolutely no sense. Another example, I mean, Charleston, South Carolina, wanted to expand its seaport. You know, well, good. It's got a lot of business going through that seaport. They waited years and years and years to get the federal money rather than just doing it themselves. This is one reason why federal spending is not only, you know, we can't afford it, but it's also damaging and harmful. Yeah, because if they did it locally and they said to the businesses that benefit directly from the expansion of the seaport, we want to expand it. Okay, what's it going to cost? We're going to have to charge the people who actually use the port for the bigger, better port. And at that point, they might say, well, yeah, don't make it fancy. Just make it just the basics because they're paying the bill. But if the bill's being paid by Uncle Joe back in Washington, D.C., they say, yeah, build whatever you want. The money is no object. That's the approach. Chris Edwards is an economic scholar at the Cato Institute. Chris, it's always a pleasure to have you on. If you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, it's always right here at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. We've always done it. We always will. If you want to send an email, talk at LarsLarson.com. You can also vote in our poll on X. It used to be called Twitter. Now it's X. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show. And you can check out our Instagram feed. All the other social media we put up, every single interview on the program is free of charge. You'll find it at LarsLarson.com. The Lars Larson Show.
McGruff the Crime Dog. The Zoom meeting you actually want to be at. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Tuesday, and it's the best conversation in talk journalism. And if you want to join in, it's certainly easy enough to do. I'll tell you how at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line, and we'll do that. I want to play this one soundbite, though, from Joe Biden, because I want to, I want to show you just how much this guy has changed his tune. If you go back to the middle of 2020, so in 2020, he was running for election, in November. Now, they cheated in the election. That's a subject for another day. But Joe Biden was trying to warn America why, if you elect this Donald Trump guy, that he's going to get us into a war. Take a listen to what Joe Biden actually said summer uh, or early fall of 2020. The world has changed because what Trump has done. And the American people, including independents and some Republicans, know how bad he is, know how much he's misrepresented, know how he's getting close to getting us in a war. I said, as the walls close in on this man, I'm worried he's going to get us to war in Iran. Unfortunately, I may have been right. The fact of the matter is there's a lot at stake in this election. Now, hold on a second. This is Joe Biden warning us, this Donald Trump guy, he's going to get us into a war with Iran. Well, Donald Trump got us out of conflicts. And now it looks like it may be Joe Biden that gets us into a war with Iran. And I thought I'd test that notion with Adam Weinstein from the Quincy Institute. Adam, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So the uh, drone attacks uh, that happened uh, uh, over the weekend, and we learned of the deaths of three service members in Jordan at a base called Tower 22. And then Joe Biden apparently has said earlier today that he he has a response that he's prepared uh, to what was done by Iran and Iran's proxies. Is this going to become the precursor to a war with Iran? Well, I certainly hope not. That's that's up to the Biden administration. Uh, the group that conducted the attack has claimed that it's going to suspend attacks uh, against uh, U.S. troops. It may be too little too late. I'm sure that Biden uh feels under pressure to respond in some way, but I, I, I think it's going to depend how much, you know, how what kind of use of force he, he uses. Why would that group announce it's going to suspend attacks? That, does that seem characteristic of a typical terrorist organization to schedule their attack? Oh, now that we've killed some Americans, wounded, badly wounded, a couple of dozen Americans at that base in Jordan, they then announce, well, now we're not going to do any for a while. Uh, well, you know, they are a terrorist group, but they're not as uh, extreme as ISIS, as an example. So it doesn't completely surprise me that they're walking it back. I think either they were pressured by Iran to make that statement, or perhaps they, you know, now they, they realize that they went too far and they're trying to protect themselves. Uh, but it's probably too little too late. But but it doesn't surprise me that they're trying to walk it back. I, I think that the group understands that killing three Americans inside Jordan was, was probably a, a, a step too far. Yeah, so so they were only planning to wound people. I mean, you know, you fly, and well, I guess it was an explosive drone because they had three of the drones. One of them managed to hit a housing location where a lot of these people were bunked up, and uh, and they killed three, and they, they, they did enough damage to five of them. They had to be airlifted out to Germany just to give people an idea of the scope of this. And there were a couple of dozen others who were wounded, but they stayed, uh, stayed in Jordan rather than being uh, air evac out to, to Germany. So 
What do you suppose they were trying to do if they weren't trying to kill Americans? Uh, well, they, they might have very well been trying to kill Americans, but now have buyer's remorse. Or perhaps they thought, well, we're going to fly a drone into the space and not kill anyone, which, you know, there's been numerous attacks that haven't killed anyone, but they can still say they conducted an attack. I suspect in this attack, given that it was a drone, uh, that they did intend to kill Americans. But maybe they have a bit of buyer's remorse right now. Uh, and at this Sorry. No, that's all. That's all. At this point, we've got 165 or 166 attacks on U.S. military facilities in Iraq and Syria and now in Jordan. What is the right response for, for Joe Biden? Well, that's a, that's a really tough situation. I mean, I, I think Joe Biden is going to feel some pressure to retaliate on these militias, but it would be a, a mistake for Americans uh, to, to retaliate to such a good degree that we get dragged into a war with Iran. I think that would be a huge mistake. So, so what I'm saying is, in some sense, I don't care what the right decision for Joe Biden is. The right decision for the United States is not to act in a, in a manner that gets us dragged into a bigger war where, where more Americans die, which, which is why for a long time I've suggested we shouldn't have forward-deployed troops in Syria and Iraq, uh, because they're a tripwire for greater conflict. They're sitting ducks. Are they serving some kind of purpose? Yes. Uh, is it worth the risk to their lives and, and to the security of the United States? I don't think so. I agree with you about everything you just said. That's Adam Weinstein from the Quincy Institute. So is it fair to also say that, that some of this, well, uh, maybe the majority of it, is because Joe Biden decided to unfreeze $6 billion in assets for Iran and decided not to uh, not to continue to enforce the sanctions against Iran, which I understand the economists have estimated the positive benefit to Iran was about $50 billion. And right after he did that, or soon after he did that, Iran began funding a lot of other terrorist activities, including this attack, it seems, and including perhaps even the attack by Hamas in Israel on October 7th. So America is, is funding or allowing to be funded terrorist activities that are now hitting our own people. Look, I, I have to be honest with you, uh, Lars. I was a, a supporter of the Iran nuclear deal, so I don't think that's the primary <laughs> cause. I think Iran had money to, to give terrorist organizations regardless. I do know, I do recognize that if there's more money, uh, there's, there's potentially more funds for those activities. But I was a supporter of the deal for the, the simple reason that I think it would have given us more leverage over Iran. Uh, but the bottom line for me is, these groups can't really reach Americans unless we send Americans over there to be reached to begin with. These are not sophisticated militias. Yes, they have drones. They're not extremely sophisticated drones. The only reason they're able to kill Americans is because we're delivering young Americans right to them by deploying them to Iraq, Syria, or along the border of Syria and Jordan. These groups couldn't reach Americans otherwise. So we're playing into their hands. That's my view. Okay, and Adam, you know, you probably sense, and I know from our prior conversations, I'm not a fan of the Iran, the JCPOA, as they call it, the Iran nuclear deal. I don't think it did any good, and Joe Biden has been chasing that thing since the beginning of his presidency with no response from Iran, except they keep making demands and he keeps caving in on things without getting anything for it. So I'm not crazy about that, and I'm a little suspicious of the argument that says, they're only attacking us because we're here is kind of like saying that young lady was only assaulted in the park because she chose to go into the park. Are we in places well, yeah. we're not legally allowed to be? 
I didn't. Well, that's another story. I didn't say they're only attacking us because we're there. I said they're able to attack us. Because able we're to. There. Yeah. Now, look, I'm not excusing Iran. Its behavior is insidious and outrageous, and I'm, I'm not going to defend the Iranian regime. The point, though, is does it make sense for us to be there? Yes. In a, in a perfect world, we should be able to have troops there to fight ISIS without being harassed by Iranian backed militias in a perfect world. But that's not the world we live in. Uh, and so does it really make sense for us to be there? I would say no. If you want to talk about the fact that the, that the Iranian regime uh, is, is in many ways an insidious regime, well, we could talk about that for the next five hours. And I'm, yeah. I'm there with you. Uh, but, what, the, you know, for me, it's what makes sense for U.S. troops, and it doesn't make sense for them to be there anymore. The ISIS threat is largely eliminated, not completely eliminated, but largely eliminated to the point where it doesn't make sense for us to be there indefinitely. I guess I just wonder that when we project weakness, well, we're up against the break. Adam, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. That's Adam Weinstein, who's with the Quincy Institute. We'll be back. I'll get to your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Talk to Lars, 866-HEY-LARS. Today, I want to address the news that the World Surf League has officially made the rule that male-bodied individuals known as transgender athletes can officially compete in the women's division. This concerns me as a professional athlete that has been competing in the World Surf League events for the past 15 plus years. That is a young lady by the name of Bethany Hamilton, and she made that statement last year because she is a young lady, an actual woman, a girl, a woman though, uh, who surfs, and she is reputed to be one of the best surfers in the world. Uh, she also lost an arm because of a shark, and she continued to compete and is very, very popular. So she made this statement last year. Why is that important today? I want to tell you what's happened next, but first, I want to tell you, welcome to the show. If you want to join the best conversation and talk journalism, it's 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. You can send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You can also vote in our poll on X. You'll find the question, a brand new one every day, at Lars Larson Show on X. You can also find it on our website at LarsLarson.com. Now, about Bethany Hamilton, I don't know the young lady. I don't really know much about surfing at all. I know I've tried to get up on a surfboard a couple of times, and it was not a pretty sight. But she does it very, very well. So what happened to her that relates to today? Last year, when she made this statement saying that it was unfair to allow biological males to pretend that they are women and to compete as women against actual biological women. Well, she had a sponsor, and the sponsor is a big promoter of surf gear. It's called Rip Curl, and they make a lot of money. And they used Bethany Hamilton as their spokesperson until she came out and said it's not fair 
for biological men, different muscles, different abilities, different strength, and everything else. And after she did that, Rip Curl dumped her. And they brought on somebody else instead. A man who now goes by the name of Sasha Lowerson. Lowerson is 44 years old, a, bio, a former biological man, and now a claimed transgender woman. Well, guess what's happened to Rip Curl now? Like most of the companies that go woke, well, they're having problems. And they're getting a huge amount of pushback because they chose a biological man who's a dude in a two-piece swimsuit who says he's now a woman and he is competing against women. And there are an awful lot of people in surfing who don't appreciate that at all. So I don't have a dog in the fight in that case, but I thought I'd tell you about that. The second issue, and then I'll get to phone calls, and that is there's a concern for an awful lot of parents out there, and I would include grandparents in that as well, that the schools are pushing the idea of transgender. And major medical centers are making this last year literally $2.2 billion on doing what they call gender-affirming care, which we've discussed before. Gender-affirming is the warm, fuzzy term for chemical castration of teenage boys and double mastectomies and trying to turn girls into boys and boys into girls. Well, I saw this great suggestion at The Federalist, and I thought it was so good. Uh, it says, a recent article pointed out that soaring malpractice insurance premiums for clinics that provide puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and surgery to minors are becoming an obstacle to those who pr uh, profit from inflicting irreparable harm on struggling adolescents under the misleading name of gender-affirming care. We've talked about the subject any number of times on this show. We've talked about people like Dr. Blair Peters, who's uh, one of these doctors who does this kind of work, admits that he does it to children. For the longest time, we had hospitals and medical professionals who said, oh, we're only doing this to adults. No, they're not. They're doing it to kids, and they're making a lot of money on it, except now they're running into the insurance claims. And I want you to imagine this, because this article in The Federalist that says this might actually save American teenagers from the kind of mutilation that these clinics have in mind, because imagine this. We've already seen a number of people who were in the middle of transition, uh, they may have even substantially transitioned. There's one young lady by the name of Chloe Cole, who's a very sympathetic case. She decided to transition to become a boy. She had a double mastectomy. She's now irreparably harmed, and she changed her mind. And she said, I don't want this anymore. And that's happening to a stunning number of teenagers who become young adults, and they say, I made a bad decision. Put it back the way it was. And there's no medical way to do that. So now, can you imagine the insurance claims that are going to be filed? As he points out in this piece in The Federalist, insurers don't make malpractice premium decisions in a vacuum. Nations in Western Europe and Scandinavia that were once at the forefront of so-called gender transition have now severely restricted the practice for minors. In the United States, several state lawmakers have passed legislation to protect minors from irreversible life-altering procedures until they become legal adults. And some states like Arkansas have lengthened the statute of limitations on malpractice suits that relate to these practices in particular. This uh, genital mutilation, uh, chemical castration, double mastectomies. Can you imagine the lawsuits? And then imagine yourself sitting on a jury saying, I'm looking at a doctor 
who decided to make irreparable, irreversible changes to a teenage boy or girl, and they now say that they were harmed by that. And how do you explain to a jury that those decisions were made with true informed consent by children? Doesn't make any sense. 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com and vote in our poll on X. Uh, but since I have a, a bit, let me go back to some of this uh, issue involving transgender. Because I really wonder how many of the parents out there who are taking part in these changes, they decide it's popular. There are a lot of people talking about this subject and, and there are a lot of, there's a lot of money to be made if you go out and you do this kind of work. The estimates are within just a few years, the medical profession in America, if you can still call it the medical profession, when they're doing things like this, the medical profession will clear five billion dollars in just the next few years per year for doing these kinds of changes to children. And when you do them to children, I've asked all along, how in the world do you get informed consent? When you go to a 14 or a 15 year old girl or boy and you say, we're about to give you chemicals that will change the way your body is developing and we may not be able to change it back. In most cases, you won't be able to change it back. And that 14 or 15 year old says, okay, I'm, I'm okay with that. Is that real informed consent? Consent when it comes to medicine has been a factor for a long, long time. Can a person who's unconscious consent? Can a person who has mental impairments consent? Can a child consent to making changes in their body, in his or her body, uh, that may not be things you can undo? And in most cases, you can't undo them, and there may be real regret down the line. 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. The Lars Larson Show.